Hi there and welcome. The First Christian Church podcast ministry features the teaching and preaching of the First Christian Church in downtown Roseburg, Oregon. Here's today's message. If you have your Bibles, turn them to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5. So that's going to be in the New Testament. If you have the Bible app, feel free to pull the Bible app out, you can actually go to the, uh, the menu and go to events, and you should be able to see our notes there for today's message. And then if you're at home, we'd encourage you to grab a journal, grab your Bible, take some notes. Uh, you'll see some things on the screen there as you're watching that you may want to jot down. And then for those of you here in the service, pull out your outline. We're in Ephesians chapter 5 as we continue with the Master's Plan. This is a study that is going to walk us through the book of Ephesians in the New Testament. So these letters in the New Testament are written by authors. This one is written by Paul. And oftentimes what they're done is they've written a letter to a group of believers in a specific city. This one is written by Paul to a group of people called the Ephesians because they live in Ephesus. It would be as if one of you would write a letter to our church and you would call us Rosebergians, right? That would be the letter. This is the Ephesian letter because it's written to a group of people in Ephesus. Paul is writing this letter from where? Who knows? He's writing this from prison. Uh, it's interesting, if you look at Acts chapter 19, we won't take the time today, but in Acts chapter 19, you actually get the story of how Paul arrives to Ephesus. This is in modern-day Turkey, and um, what he does there is he meets up with a group of believers, some sincere followers, but they had missed the truth about who Jesus is. They missed the truth about the resurrection. They didn't quite understand that Jesus Christ came to die to uh, have their sins forgiven. He rose again uh, after being crucified. We celebrate the resurrection. And so when Paul told them the beautiful story of who Jesus was, these followers in Ephesus formed what is known as the Ephesian church. Years later, after being imprisoned by the Romans, Paul writes this letter to these followers. Now, there are other books in the Bible that are written for very specific purposes. Um, if you look in the New Testament, there's First and Second Timothy. Paul writes to First and Second Timothy, a very specific letter to a young pastor who's taking over a church. He does the same thing in Titus. Uh, First and Second Corinthians, they have some very specific issues in their church, and so Paul writes to address those issues. This is more of a letter to greet the church of Ephesus, but also to explain to them uh, in great detail the glorious majesty of the gospel. In fact, he takes three chapters to do so. He talks to them about the beauty and the majesty of the gospel. We talked about last week how in those first three chapters, there's only two commands given to us as followers of Christ. And then four, five, and six, now that we have an understanding of the gospel, what do our lives look like now that we've accepted Christ? What is the impact of the gospel in our lives? So while there's two commands in the first three chapters, there's over 60 commands in 4, 5, and 6. Because too much is given, much is required. Because we now embrace the gospel of Jesus Christ, our lives should look different now. Our beliefs determine our behavior, and our behaviors reflect what we believe. So we've begun with this premise for the book of Ephesians, that if the gospel doesn't impact your relationships... You are living an incomplete version of the gospel. Every one of your relationships should be impacted because of your relationship with God. So in Ephesians chapter 5, Paul has a discussion about 
Love, light, and the Spirit. Everyone say those three words. Love, light, and the Spirit. So we begin in verse 1. Ephesians chapter 5 in verse 1 says this. Follow God's example. Therefore, as dearly loved children, and walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. He says there in verse 1, follow God's example as dearly loved children. We are to make God our example and our model, and we cannot be content with ourselves comparing us with other Christians. Now this is something we get really good at as Christians, is we compare our spirituality to other Christians, right? Um, maybe it's just me, but um, we, we, we look at our spiritual life and we say, well, uh, I go to church way more than that person does. I'm sure I give way more than that person. I dress way better than that person. Uh, and we start comparing ourselves spiritually to other Christians. Paul sets the standard here in Ephesians 5 verse 1, follow God's example. And so it is, it is the duty of us to make God our example and our model. And if we pattern our life after others, sooner or later you will be disappointed. In fact, as your pastor, let me just tell you this. If you pattern your life after my life, you will be disappointed. Because we all broken, we're all uh, come short of the glory of God. Now, Paul and other letters, letters will tell uh, followers, you should follow me as I follow Christ. And that's a clear guideline in Scripture. But ultimately, Paul says here in Ephesians 5, follow God's example as if you were dearly loved children. And so we embrace this idea of being loved children. Uh, the way God relates to us becomes our standard for how we relate with one another. So when we walk in the way of love, as Christ loved us, it is a continuation of this thought in Ephesians 4. At the end of Ephesians 4, he says this, Be kind, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God forgave you. So the standard for the forgiveness was to forgive others like God forgave us. What Paul says here is the standard by which we love one another is how God loves us. Um, as we have entered this journey of, um, of uh, going into uh, f- being foster parents and having foster kids in our homes, I've read a couple of different articles, and I, I, I read this one not too long ago, Property Laws According to a Toddler. Property Laws According to a Toddler. Rule number one, if I like it, it's mine. How many of you can identify with this already, right? Rule number two, if it's in my hand, it's mine. If I can take it from your hands, it's mine. Number four, if I had it a little while ago, it's still mine. Number five, if it's mine, it must never appear to be yours in any way. Number six, if I'm doing or building something, all the pieces are mine. Number seven, if it looks just like mine, it's mine. Number eight, if I saw it first, it's mine. Number nine, if you are playing with something and you put it down, it automatically becomes mine. And number ten, if it's broken, it's yours. (laughs) Children are great, aren't they? I mean, the world's so crystal clear to children. 
They're natural imitators, aren't they? They're natural imitators. Um, I love the picture of children finding shoes in their home that uh, belong to their mom or dad. And what does a toddler want to do so bad? They want to walk in those shoes. They want to struggle to put them on, and they can't quite understand why their foot won't fit in that shoe. And they want those shoes tied, and then they'll plop around the house, right? Because they're natural imitators. Uh, Children uh, simply do or say whatever they see their parents or adults do. Have you ever heard one of your children say something, and you think, where did you hear that? It's from you. They heard it from you, right? When we act according to our nature as dearly loved children, our impulse, our desire should be, I want to be just like him. And in all things, Jesus becomes our example. Um, As he loves us and gives himself for us, we are to display the same kind of self-giving love to others. Now this can trip us up because what if someone doesn't deserve our love? What if someone uh, abuses or uh, mistreats or manipulates our love? What if someone takes advantage of our love? And the crazy thing is this, because Jesus is our example, we must ask ourselves this, did we deserve God's love? Are we worthy of his grace? Because that's the standard on how we love others, because Christ loved you. Now, for a few verses, Paul does this. He discusses what the opposite of walking in love looks like. And it's not pretty. Look at verse 3. He says this, Among you, there must not even be a hint of sexual immorality or any kind of impurity or of greed because these are improper for God's people, God's holy people. Verse 4, Nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking, which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. Paul doesn't mess around. He says there shouldn't even be a hint of any of these things. Sexual immorality. We are living in a day where our sexual ethics are being blurred by every exterior voice, and it's important for parents and children of God to understand what the Bible says about sexual ethics. He says there shouldn't even be a hint of sexual immorality. He goes on to say this word impurity, any kind of impurity. This is a broad word in the New Testament Greek that also translates, uh, perhaps in your translation, as uncleanness. He's talking about dirty, immoral behavior. You see, the culture of Paul's day, he is in Ephes- or he's writing to Ephes- uh, Ephesians in Ephesus. In the city of Ephesus, there was the goddess Diana, and this whole town was consumed by sexual immorality. And the sort of behavior Paul says is not fitting for saints was pretty much completely approved by his culture. And so God's people need to have sexual ec- ethics that mirror the values of God, not the values of our day, not the values that you determine are acceptable, not the values that make sense to us, but the value of God, because these values are for your own good. You think about, uh, you think about where the Ten Commandments came from. We're looking at a, a ex, a Exodus. Uh, the children of Israel are in bondage to whom? The Egyptians. They're in slavery for hundreds of years. 
uh, along comes the birth of Moses, and Moses is chosen to lead an exodus of God's people out of Egypt into their own promised land. And through a series of events, they are now no longer slaves. They've been uh, uh, they've left Egypt. They've crossed over to the Red Sea. They're on the edge of the promised land. And now God provides them the law. He provides these words, these instructions for life. And the origination of the law was to help the Israelites create a a healthy, successful society. Because for 400 years, they only had Egyptians to tell them when to wake up, tell them uh, what to do, how to work. The Egyptians settled all their disputes. The Egyptians made the law. And now, some uh, theologians and historians believe a million Israelites are all on their own. A million Israelites left to their own devices. A million people with no government, no organizational structure. I'm pretty sure if we took an order for lunch on where we should go to lunch, the 80 or 100 of us, we would have a riot on where to go to eat. Can you think about a million people trying to agree on what a successful society looks like? So God gave these rules, these guidelines for them, and much of the law, much of these guidelines are in order to create healthy relationships with God and with one another. So when we think about sexual ethics, these are not rules that are preventing ourselves from enjoying every lust in our hearts. What it is is God is giving us the guidelines for what a healthy relationship with God looks like and what a healthy relationship looks like with one another. Let's look at verse 4 again. Watch your toes. Paul is going to get pretty personal here. He said there should be no obscenity, foolish talk, coarse joking, which are out of place. Obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking. Paul includes these on the list because of the brokenness that they emanate from. So Paul doesn't excuse their brokenness when it comes to their language and say, it's okay if you have a temper, we understand that. It's okay if, uh, if uh, everyone at work does it, uh, you're excused because of your profession. You don't get to blame your parents on your poor language. We don't get to go easy on ourselves because of our temper, our personality type, or our Enneagram number. We are called to a higher standard, a standard of gratitude. Now, it's interesting here that the... Um, the juxtaposition of behaviors. He says on this side, there is sexual immorality, impurity, greed, um, obscenity, foolish talk, coarse joking. All of those are out of place. And instead, there should be thanksgiving. What would your home look like if everyone was grateful? Yeah. If everyone was just grateful for the next meal you served. If everyone was just grateful for air conditioning. If everyone was just grateful for electricity, what would it look like to have a home that exudes gratefulness? The standard is much higher for us. It's a standard of gratitude. And Paul explains to us that there is no inheritance in God's kingdom for those who refuse to walk in love. He says in verse 5, of this you can be sure, no immoral, impure, or greedy person such a person is an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. In fact, let no one deceive you with empty words because of such things God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. 
Therefore, do not be partners with them. Paul says when we fail to walk in love, we become idolaters ourselves. And we cannot allow these empty words to excuse or minimize the judgment that God has for them. So he talks about love. Next, he talks about light in verse 8. So he's talking about love, light, and the Spirit. Look at verse 8 as he describes light. He says, you were once darkness, and now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light. For the fruit of light consists in all of goodness, righteousness, and truth. And Find out what pleases the Lord. Have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of the darkness, but rather expose them. It is shameful even to mention what the disobedient do in secret. Now here's the beautiful reality here as Paul describes light. Paul condemns those who practice these sins because, uh, because of the brokenness that exists, but he also recognizes that this was the exact same darkness that we have emerged from. It's the same place we've emerged from. All of us, uh, the verse that Ryan read uh, when, uh, in the video is Titus 3, and, and, and Paul writes to Titus and he says, we too have become disobedient and foolish. All of us have the same brokenness, but now we are light. We are children of the light. What does this mean? Well, this means that if we are children of the light, it's time to live like children of the light. We should have lives that reflect our identity. Now, the light bears fruit through the Spirit with goodness, righteousness, and truth. These should mark our lives. Now, everyone and every family has values by which you make decisions. There's values that you have. Some of, maybe one of your values is uh, you, you're going to be frugal with your money. And so whenever opportunities come up to spend money, you're going you're gonna to view it through this prism of, well, how can we save money with this purchase? Uh, some of you have a value on family time. And above all else, we're going to strive to create moments of uh, opportunity where we spend time together as a family. Uh, some of us have um, values that maybe are not so wholesome. Um, and maybe there's a value in your home where you're always putting down one another. And it appears to be in humor. It appears to be in sarcasm. But children grow up with that kind of value and it stays with them. What Paul is explaining to us here is as children of light, there are values by which we make decisions and how we behave. And the values are these, goodness, righteousness, and truth. These are the value systems by which we behave. He goes on to say in verse 13, everything exposed by the light becomes visible. And everything that is illuminated becomes a light. That is why it says, wake up sleeper, rise up from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Look at verse 13 again, that first phrase. Everything, <clears throat> everything exposed by the light becomes visible. That's a sobering thought, isn't it? That everything done in secret will one day be exposed. Everything done, all your, your, uh, all your thoughts, all your behaviors, everything will be exposed by the light that is Jesus Christ and will become visible because God is searching. He goes on to explain what this means for us in verse 15. He says this, Be very careful then how you live, 
not as unwise, but as wise. Because everything in your life is going to become visible one day. We should be very careful. Verse 15, uh, 16, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Therefore, don't be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. So here's Paul's advice. Uh, because we walk in love, because we're children of the light now, and everything we do will one day be visible, here's his advice. Be careful. Be wise. Make the most of every opportunity. Don't be foolish. And understand God's will. Because the days are evil. It's a sobering thought to realize that our life here on this earth does not last as long as we think it does. Our lives are but a, a, a vapor. It's here one moment and it's gone the next. And Paul is urging us, man, our days are so short. Be careful how you live. Be wise and make the most of every opportunity. He goes on to talk about the Spirit. So love, light, and the Spirit. In the Spirit, he wants us to understand that walking in love and as children of the light is rooted in being filled with the Spirit. Look at verse 18, if you have your Bibles open. Verse 18 says this, Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another with psalms, with hymns, songs from the Spirit. Sing and make music from your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is an important verse. This is where we want to rest today. The filling of the Spirit is not a one-time event that we live off the rest of our days, but it's a, it's a constant filling. It's us asking to be filled. It's us receiving the filling by faith. Now, the ancient Greek gives us two um, interesting notes about this, uh, this phrase in verse 18, be filled with the Spirit. Uh, first, the verb is passive, so this is not a manufactured experience. And second, it's an imperative, which means it's not an optional experience. We are commanded to be filled with the Spirit. Much of the weakness, the defeat, and the lethargy in our spiritual life can be attributed to the fact that we are not constantly being filled with the Holy Spirit. What would your life look like if you were filled with the Holy Spirit when you're having a conversation with your spouse? What would it look like if you're filled with the Holy Spirit when you're at work or when you're parenting or when you're in the car or in every single relationship? What would your life look like if you were filled with the Holy Spirit? The comparison he makes there is uh, being drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. The image he's trying to get us to understand is this. When you are drunk with wine, you are giving yourself over to another influence. So, you're, so this other influence impacts how you talk, how you behave, how you interact with others. And he says, instead of that, I want you to think about being filled with the Holy Spirit. So that in every conversation, every behavior, every interaction with people, there's an influence of the Holy Spirit. How kind, gracious, and compassionate would our lives look, right? Um, what, would, what would it look like to, to have an argument filled with the Holy Spirit? That seems a little counterintuitive, doesn't it? What would it look like to have an interaction with someone else at work that you don't always get along with if you're filled with the Holy Spirit? 
So Paul urges us, be filled with the Spirit. A Spirit-filled life is marked by worship and gratitude. Look at verse uh, 19. Here's the description of being filled with the Spirit. Speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and songs from the heart. Sing and make music from your heart to the Lord. Um, He never says you have to sing all that well either. He doesn't say you have to be in tune. He doesn't say your sandals have to be on. He just says to sing with psalms, with hymns, and songs from the Spirit. Sing and make music from your heart. Here's the audience to the Lord. It's a fascinating thing that when we sing with one another, the audience is God. It is for the audience of one. And then he goes on to say this, verse 20, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything. When we're filled with the Spirit, we'll have a desire to worship God and encourage one another in their worship. And the connection with being filled with the Spirit and then worship is significant because those who are filled with the Spirit will naturally praise, they will naturally worship. And the one who is filled with the Spirit will also be filled with thanksgiving. This may seem like a funny point, but I want you to write it down. A complaining heart and the Holy Spirit don't go together. A complaining heart and the Holy Spirit just don't go to one to one another. The Spirit-filled life is marked by worship and gratitude. Here in a few moments, we're going to sing again, and I want us to really key in on this phrase, being filled with the Spirit is marked by my worship in my gratitude. So this week, as you go through your days, I'd love for you to pray, Lord, fill me with your Holy Spirit today. I want the filling of the Holy Spirit, and then in that same breath where you breathe that prayer, think about worship and gratitude. What's the, what's the song in your heart that would lead you to worship? And then what can you be grateful for? There's a hymn, there's a song, there's a melody in your heart that if you think about it, it's there, and it's there as a sign of worship. What's the song in your heart? What's the place your heart can go to? What's the melody? Where's the song that would be a gift to our Heavenly Father? This last week, um, I found myself singing uh, The Goodness of God. And the bridge is taken from Psalms 23, where the end of Psalms 23 says this, Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. And the bridge of that song says this, Your goodness is running. It's running after me. And the picture of God's goodness and his mercy running after me became my safe place this week. It became the place where my heart went just to worship. 
So what's the hymn, what's the song, the worship song that would find your heart worshiping our Heavenly Father? I'll be honest, I've always wondered why he lists these three types of songs. Look at verse 19 again. Speaking to one another with psalms, with hymns, and with songs from the Spirit. I think part of the reason why he gives us three different types of ways to worship him is because you and I are different. And at different moments in our life, there's going to be a psalm that comes to our heart. There will be a hymn that we have worshiped with all of our life. And maybe there's a new song from the Spirit that comes in our life. But these are the ways we're filled. These are evidences of being filled is worship. But then this, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. A complaining heart and the Holy Spirit just don't go together. So this is the exercise. I want you to think about a life you could complain. Uh, think about a part of your life, a, a section of your life, a piece of your life that you could complain about. I want you to think about that place. I mean, if it didn't take that long. I want you to think about that place where you have reason to complain. It is a legitimate complaint. I believe Habakkuk is a book of the Bible where Habakkuk just complains to God. How many times have we looked at the Psalms and the Psalms just complain? So I want you to think about a part of your life where you have a legitimate complaint. And wherever that place of your life is, I want you to breathe a word of thanksgiving for that place of your life. So, if your children are the source of your complaint, and by the shaking of the or the nodding of the heads, maybe that's it. I want you to breathe three words of thanksgiving about your kids. If your finances are the place where you have a legitimate complaint, I want you to breathe three words of thanksgiving to God about your finances. Whatever that space is that you find yourself complaining, if you change your posture towards it and give yourself some room to be thankful, you will find your heart start to melt and all of a sudden the Holy Spirit is filling you. A spirit-filled life is marked with worship and with gratitude. There's a phrase in Ephesians 5 that is interesting. Um, it's important to understand that when Paul makes, says to make the most of every opportunity or to redeem the time, how many of your Bibles say that? It says to redeem the time. He's not being general or vague. He's talking about something very specific. So the ancient Greek word or the ancient Greeks, I should say, had two words for time. They had this word on the left called chronos. Everyone say chronos. You see the word root in there, right? Chrono, that means for time. And then they have this other word called kairos. Everyone say kairos. There's chronos in kairos. Chronos, the one on the left, refers to chronological or sequential time. Kairos refers to an opportune time for action. So chronos is quantitative. Uh, kairos has qualitative nature. One uh, of these, chronos, has the idea of day upon day, hour upon hour. The one on the right has the idea of a definite portion of time, an opportunity where something should happen. It's the difference between time and the time. Here's the idea. It's a definite season of opportunity 
on the right-hand side. This kairos refers to the season of grace, the season of opportunity that you are gifted where you should make the most of every opportunity because you have a special window of time. Paul isn't telling us to make the most of every moment of every day of the rest of our life, even though that is excellent advice. He's telling us to seize this moment for the glory of God. It isn't enough to make the most of time, but to make the most of the time. And the idea behind redeeming the time is that you buy back the opportunity like a shrewd businessman. You make the most of every opportunity for Jesus Christ. So when Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 5 that these are the ways we should live because the days are evil, in verse 15 he says this, Be careful how you live, not as unwise but as wise, making the most of every opportunity, redeeming the time because the days are evil. I believe there is a special window of opportunity in our lives where God gifts us these opportunities to be filled with the Spirit. And in those windows of time, if you can be filled with the Spirit, you will find yourself opening yourself up to more conversations that lead back to God. You'll find yourself with more relationships that want to have something in their life similar to what God has done in your life. Because you're filled with the Spirit. A Spirit-filled life is marked with worship and gratitude. Would you bow your heads for a moment? And we're going to put this into practice right now. If you would bow your heads, if you're watching online, we'd encourage you to do the same thing. This just gives us the opportunity to have a little privacy, but it also gives you an opportunity to reflect upon what we've talked about. The Spirit-filled life is marked with worship and with gratitude. With your heads bowed, I want you to think about this. What's the song of your heart for this season? What's the song of your heart for this season of life? Maybe some of you are, are thinking about that beautiful hymn that says, It is well. Whatever my lot, whatever life may throw at me, my heart will say, It is well. Maybe it's, uh, maybe it's a song we've sung already today and you think about 10,000 reasons to bless the Lord. I want you to think about the song of your heart this week and then in your moments of frustration, in the moments where you really need the Holy Spirit to fill your heart, I want you to go back to this song that you're thinking of right now. A spirit-filled life is marked by worship and with gratitude and take those moments those kairos moments, those opportunity moments to worship with this song. And then as we did before, I want you to think about the, mo the place in your life where you feel like you might have a legitimate complaint. And rather than to rest in the negativity of the situation or to rest in the complaint, I want, to picture, I want you to picture yourselves lifting yourself up from that complaint and breathing the words of thanksgiving for this portion of your life. As you do those two things, you're going to find yourself being filled with the Holy Spirit. And all of a sudden, your relationships change, your conversations change, your whole demeanor changes, your posture changes, because now you're influenced by the Holy Spirit. 
If you've never placed your trust in God, I want to just briefly talk to you for a moment with your heads bowed. We saw a beautiful, beautiful example of what that looks like at the start of our service. And I'd encourage you today. I just encourage you. It's no mistake that you're listening. It's no mistake that you're here. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. God proved his love toward us so that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And so I'd encourage you today to come to Jesus. I'd encourage you today to put your faith and trust in him for this new life. We'd be honored to show you from the Bible what that means. We'd be honored to take some time to explain what that looks like, how, it, how baptism can be a new mark in your life. In a few moments when we take communion together, you can identify with Christ by taking communion with us then. Maybe this is the first time you receive communion as a follower of Jesus Christ. We'd urge you to put your faith and trust in him. With your heads bowed for just a moment more, I'm going to ask the worship team to come forward. And we are going to put into practice what we've just learned. We're going to make the most of this opportunity by worshiping and being grateful. And before we do, I want you to have the opportunity to breathe that prayer of thanksgiving that we talked about. And so for just a few moments while our heads are bowed and we prepare for worship, we want to give you the opportunity to just be thankful and breathe a word of thanksgiving for just a few moments. Thank you so much for listening to this week's message. If you made a decision for Christ or would like prayer with someone from our church family, we would love to connect with you. You can message us on Facebook by searching Roseburg First Christian Church, or you can email us directly at roseburgfcc at gmail.com. In addition, if you're listening to this message on Apple or Spotify, we invite you to like, subscribe, rate, and review this podcast and share it on social media so others can be blessed as well. God bless you and have a beautiful day.